Well, thank you. It's uh, good to be with you again, uh, filling in for Stephen while he's on taking a break. And if you didn't catch it before, my name's Trevor. And uh, let us pray before we think about another, I suppose, modern hero of the faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its messages to us. We thank you for those passages we've just read. And we ask that you will indeed encourage our hearts, warm them, help us to understand what it is you are saying to us, but more importantly, help us to respond with hearts that will obey, hearts that seek to bring you honour and glory. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, today I've been asked to share some thoughts about a great faithful woman named Corrie Ten Boom, who has long been honoured by evangelical and missionary circles as an example, a great example, of Christian faith in action. Arrested and imprisoned in Germany during World War II for aiding and abetting and hiding Jews who were fleeing from German persecution, she encouraged others with words like, never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Now, I don't know if you've heard of Terry, uh, Corrie Ten Boom before, but I first learned about her when I was uh, in my young adult years, early 20s, back in the 1970s, and I learned of her through her book, The Hiding Place. The Hiding Place, which was made into a film that you can still rent or download or even buy from Kurong, I believe, for the bargain price of $10 well worth looking at or reading. Corrie Ten Boom began her life in Amsterdam on the 15th of April, 1892. Born into the Ten Boom family, named after her mother Cornelia and yet known as Corrie all of her life. Her father Caspar was a Christian and he was a a jeweller and a watchmaker. Had his own shop in Harlem which was the town of Amsterdam that they lived in. And it's recorded that her father was, you know, just so fascinated by the craft of watchmaking that he would often become so engrossed in the watch he was repairing that he would forget to charge his client for the services he gave them. But the entire Ten Boom family were Christians. With Corrie, to the great joy of her mother, becoming a Christian when she was five years old. And with her parents, her brother uh, Willem and her sisters Betsy and Nolly, they would meet together around the oval table in their dining room every morning as a family, not just for breakfast, but for prayer and for reading the Bible together. Her father Casper was very, um, what's the word, um, definite about this that they would read the scriptures together daily as a family and often would call them together again in the evening to read another chapter together. And their faith inspired them to serve their society, the community around them. And they did that by offering shelter and food and clothing and money to those who were in need of it. We're told that Corrie loved to travel and she attended a Bible conferences in different countries 
And in the early 20s, she actually received a diploma in Bible study. Corrie also trained to be a watchmaker. And in 1922, at the age of 30, she became the first woman in the Netherlands to be licensed as a watchmaker. Over the next decade, in addition to working in her father's shop, Corrie also started up a, a youth or a girls' club for girls who were in need. And, and through that club, they provided religious instruction, but also classes on uh, uh, the arts, sewing and handcrafts. And they met about every second week, I think it was, until 1940. During World War II, then in 1940, Germany invaded the Netherlands and took over that country. And shortly after they took over the country, they actually banned that girls' club from meeting. During this time, Corrie's family uh, was involved with a local church, a local Dutch Reformed church, and they were involved in the church's efforts to shelter Jewish neighbours who were being driven out of their homes. And she found places for them to stay in. They provided some other things that were necessary, such as food, especially during that period of food rationing, and the word spread. And then more and more people came to their home or to their shop. The home was above the shop. They came to the shop seeking shelter and help. And her father, Caspar, readily agreed that they could stay with them, even though the, uh, the police headquarters was only half a block down the road from them. And the demand was so great that Corrie and her family eventually had a false wall constructed in Corrie's bedroom that would, you know, sort of form a secret room, what she referred to later as a hiding place, for both Jews and Gentile people who were, you know, being pursued by the Gestapo. If you read about it, it was an interesting construction. It took a bit of time because they had to smuggle the bricks in one or two at a time as people visited the shop. But eventually it was built and it got used greatly. And of course, all of this was in defiance of German orders. On February the 28th in 1944, a man named Jan Vogel came to their shop and sought help. He asked Corrie for help. He said that he and his wife had been hiding Jews and now his wife had been arrested. And he needed 600 guilders in order to, to bribe a policeman in order for her to be released. Corrie promised help. Only to find out later that day that he was a Dutch informant who were working, or who was working for the Nazis. And later that afternoon, the Ten Boom home was raided by the German police and Corrie and her family were taken into custody. You can read that the people who were hiding in a house at the time were safe. Corrie's father died of an illness within 10 days of being arrested. But Corrie and her older sister Betsy remained in a series of prisons and concentration camps 
first in Holland and then later in Germany. When Corrie and Bessie first arrived at the Ravensbrück concentration camp in Germany, she says to how they were ordered to strip naked and to parade past the watching eyes of German soldiers. And she says, for them, as godly women raised in a devout Christian home where purity and chastity were virtues, they were horrified. They were horrified at that experience. They found it incredibly humiliating. They feared for their lives. There was terror of the unknown future. And it hit them that they were the enemy for these people. Were they able to know the peace of God which passes all understanding as they stood there before the guards? Curry writes, yes, they did. Her sister Betsy turned to her at that time and said that they were going to rejoice in the fellowship of Christ's suffering because Jesus himself had been stripped naked at Calvary and exposed to the eyes of men. Time and time again, they rejoiced through their fear, despite all the humiliating and degrading circumstances and the constant stench of death that was there around them. Ah, they didn't rejoice because there was something to rejoice about. They rejoiced because there was someone in whom they could rejoice. Their fear and doubt were conquered by a deep faith that enabled them to rejoice no matter what their circumstances were. Corrie also recalls that at their induction into Ravensbrook, there was some sort of kerfuffle that went on in the, uh, in the line with the woman that was right in front of them. And as the soldiers turned their attention to that woman, they waved Corrie and Betsy through. And so they didn't inspect their clothing and they didn't find the Bible that was in Corrie's coat pocket. And that Bible was used, she says, to minister hope and faith to many, many women at Ravensbrook. Corrie described a typical evening as follows. She said, at first we met with some of the women with great timidity, but as night after night went by and no guard ever came near us, we grew bolder. Many of the women wanted to join us and so we held a second service after evening roll call. And those times in Barracks 28 were like no other, she says. A recital of the Magnificat in Latin by a group of Roman Catholics, a whispered hymn by some Lutherans, a chant by Eastern Orthodox women. But then either Betsy or I would, uh, sorry, would open the Bible and because only the Dutch could understand the Dutch text, we would translate aloud into German and then we would hear the life-giving words passed back along the aisles in French and Polish and Russian and Czechoslovakian and yes, even back into Dutch. She says they were little previews <coughs> of heaven, those evenings behind or below a light bulb. <coughs> Corrie writed, or wrote later that Jesus empowered them by his spirit to touch countless lives 
that would eventually make their way to death's door. They were well worth all the suffering. Corrie also spoke of the great infestation of fleas that was at Ravensbrook. And she remembers praying that God would somehow provide relief from these infectious and relentless pests. But that didn't happen. There was always fleas around. However, it was later on that Corrie found out that the reason the guards never came into their barracks at night was because of the fleas. While they were there at Ravensbrook, uh, Betty, Betsy's health worsened and on the 16th of December 1944, Betsy became one of the 92,000 women who died at Ravensbrook, dying just 12 days before Corrie was released from there. And after Corrie was released, she was told that her release was actually due to a clerical error and that a week after her release, all the women in her barracks, in her age group, were sent to the gas chambers. For the rest of the life, Corrie Ten Boom would tell the story of God's deep love, his faithfulness in all situations, to countless millions of people around the world. And she did that through her books and her many speaking engagements in over 60 countries. It was at one of those speaking engagements in Germany in 1947 that Corrie came face to face with one of her tormentors, a prison guard who had been at Ravensbrook. And she says that it all suddenly started come, coming, you know, rushing back into her mind, all the things, the torment, having to parade naked before this man, the cruelty that she saw him um, do to others. And after the meeting, this man came up to her and said, you mentioned that you were at Ravensbrook. I was a guard there. But then, or by rather, but since then, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But, and as he stuck out his hand towards her, he said, will you forgive me? And Corrie says she just stood there. She just stood there, her mind reflecting on the fact that every day God has forgiven her sins. And yet there was this great turmoil going on in her mind and her heart. What should she do? And Corrie said she prayed. She prayed. She asked Jesus to help her. She thought that she could put out a hand, but it would have to be Jesus who provided any will to forgive this man. And Corrie said she put her hand into his. And as she did so, she felt this healing warmth flow from her shoulder down through her arm and into their hands. And she just cried. And she said, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. And Corrie said she's never known God's love as intensely as she did at that moment in time. Wow. 
This was a woman who encouraged others to say, or by saying, never be afraid to trust that unknown future to a known God. Well, what can we learn from the life and faith of Corrie ten Boom? This morning I'm just going to look quickly at three things. And firstly, as you look at Corrie's life, you can't help but notice how she treasured God's word. She deeply treasured its truth and she risked her life on many occasions to get this book, God's Word, the Bible, into some of the darkest places of history. And if she'd been found, the consequences would have been just catastrophic. She wrote about the Bible in many of her books and she described it as being like the staple food in her diet to be consumed every day, but also like it was a rich gourmet meal to be savoured with every bite. And you can see that her family and her home upbringing, her family's routine, that every morning they would read the Bible together, they made it a priority. It was important to them. Corrie saw God's word as being life-giving and powerful. It was deeply enriching. It would change the world. It was enlightening. It was hope-restoring. And it was fully alive. It was the living word of God. And her experiences bore that out. I wonder if we realise how alive and powerful and how much a gift God's word is to us. I think we often focus on God giving us his son and the amazing way that Jesus sacrificed himself for us and rightly so, we should do that. But I wonder if we sometimes overlook that God has given to you and to me the gift of his word, that is, God breathed. Corrie Tim Boom said this, The evil one doesn't make us bad, he makes us busy. And how true that is in the rapid pace of life today, yeah? How often is our daily Bible reading crowded out by other things? Why is that? Do we really think that the scriptures are living and powerful and life-changing and hope-restoring? You see, the amazing thing about the word of God is not just seeing it as an historic book to be kept on the shelf. This book has deep meaning and content that God wants us to apply and to look at. Deep uh, content and meaning that can radically change our day. That passage from the beginning of 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning said, like newborn babies... Crave the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it you may grow in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Hey, do you have that craving, <clears throat> that deep down longing for the word of God? Remember what the psalmist says? Oh, how I love thy law. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It says the law of the Lord is perfect, 
transforming the soul. It says it is to be more desired than gold, even much fine gold. Is that how you feel about the scriptures? I'm sure we all know the, the strong desires and cravings that come from things, yeah? Like drug addicts, they have this craving, this strong desire for drugs because they need it. They don't think they can live without it. We understand that strong impulse and, and desire. What about pregnancy? Yeah? I know from experience that when uh, there is pregnancy involved, then people get cravings. Chocolate in the middle of the night. Ice cream. Can't live without it. And in our case with our first child, gherkins. Gherkins. Yes, they appeared on everything. We had to have gherkins. And the Apostle Paul says that we are to crave, we're to have that strong desire, that strong longing for God's word. Just like newborn babies had that craving for milk. Yeah? It's amazing how violent a little life can get. You experience that? They will cry and cry and cry until they get fed. Until they get the milk that they need. You know, it won't do you any good to try and feed a newborn baby you know, salt and vinegar chips or a meat pie or a Big Mac with French fries. No. And yet once the child is placed on its mother's breast, it is instantly calm and at rest, isn't it? Because it's receiving what is intended for it. The pure, unadulterated milk of its mother. That's how you and I should desire this book. You know, we're to suck with all our strength and all our might to draw out all the nourishment and instruction and assurances that God intends for us. Why? So that by it we will grow spiritually. So that by it we will grow up in our salvation. And I pray that you will crave this book. Oh, not so that you can learn great chunks of it off by heart but so that you can come to know its author intimately. God's word, God breathed. And then secondly, I want to see in Corrie's life and ministry an example of how we are to live as Christians in regard to our worldly laws and human authorities. 1 Peter chapter 2, there God says that we are to submit ourselves for the Lord's sake, to every human authority. And yet Corrie did the exact opposite, didn't she? And yes, she had to suffer the consequences of doing that. In my lifetime, and uh, even today, missionaries are doing the same thing. In the mid-20th century, some missionaries smuggled Bibles into China where uh, that was against that country's laws. Today we have missionaries, say, who are sharing the news of Jesus in Muslim countries where embracing the Christian faith can be fatal. And yes, those who are caught will have, have to suffer the consequences for their actions. 
Well, how do we as Christians justify this sort of behaviour? Well, if you quickly reflect back to that Acts reading, that reading from Acts chapter 5, we see that submission here on earth has its limits. Peter and the other apostles had been brought before the Sanhedrin because they had done what the Sanhedrin had commanded them not to do. They had got out and continued to preach in the name of Jesus. And notice their response. You can read it in Acts 5 verse 29. We must obey God rather than human beings. And from that there seems to be a limitation on human authority, doesn't there? Because if any human authority or state tells us to do something that contradicts what God tells us to do, then we say no. We'd rather obey God than man. The little phrase in 1 Peter chapter 2 I think is helpful. It says, for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake. Act, and that sort of acts like an overarching statement when it comes to our submission to worldly authorities. Better submit for the Lord's sake. Christians are law-abiding citizens, or at least I hope we are. We pay our taxes, we drive at the speed limits. We, we do drive at the speed limits, don't we? We drive at the speed limits, we try to live in peace with our fellow citizens, but we never render to any authority under God absolute allegiance. We should never see our governments as our final authority. We are to always submit for Christ's sake, which turns our obedience to any human authority into a form of worship for God, and of glorifying God. As I said before, if any human authority or government tells us to do something that's contrary to what God tells us to do, then we need to pray about it and possibly say no. However, when you do that, you will also need to be willing to suffer the consequences of your actions. Whatever we do, we should do all for the glory of God. And then lastly, I want us to take a moment to think about forgiveness. Forgiveness. And oh, how tough it can be to forgive others, yeah? It's been called tough love by many people. I wonder how you would have reacted if it was you who came face to face with that prison guard. How would you have reacted? I find that situation quite challenging because I've got to be honest, I don't know how I would have reacted. Jesus said, if you do not forgive others their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Wow. That's saying something. Jesus even said that we are to forgive our enemies. We are to love our enemies. As Jesus hung on the cross, nailed there by some of those who were standing around it, what did he pray? Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. When Peter asked Jesus, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother and my sister 
who sinned against me up to seven times? What was his answer? No, I tell you, not seven times, but 70 times seven. One of the problems for us is that we often are told that we have to forgive and forget. We were told that we need to forgive and forget. And sometimes we can't get ourselves out of the thought that we simply can't forget. Well, I don't think that's what God expects of us. I don't think that's what God asks us to do. I believe there will be some things that happen in life that we won't be able to forget. And yet, we are still called on to forgive. I don't think there was a chance in the world that Corrie ten Boom could have forgotten the torment that she experienced in Ravensbrook or the death of a father and a sister in custody. And yet, Corrie, in the strength of the Lord, was not only able but also spiritually blessed as she extended forgiveness to that prison guard. I'm always amazed how many Christians can't seem to forgive. And especially they can't seem to forgive their brothers and sisters they meet with every Sunday in church. I wonder how they go forgiving their enemies. It's interesting. Because our enemies don't usually apologise or say sorry. And yet that's the challenge, isn't it? to put our faith into action, to live out our faith, to behave in a way that actually backs up what we believe, to be led by the Holy Spirit rather than our own feelings. Well, how has the example of this godly woman's life and faith in action affected you this morning? Has Corrie been uh, a warmth to your heart? Or has she challenged it? Do you have a deep longing and love for God's word? Are you praying for the people that God puts into your life? You know, people to reach out to and to love and to care for. Are you asking God to use you to impact the lives of the people he brings into your life? Are you holding on to grudges? that should be dealt with in God's strength. As Corrie would say, never be afraid to put God first in your life. Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. And so let me encourage you then to go in peace, to love and to serve the Lord, living lives that are worthy of the gospel, living lives that will bring glory to God your Heavenly Father. Let's pray.